0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn in your Bibles to the 11th Psalm. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, just so you know, the scriptures will be on the screens behind me. Um, If you would like a Bible, you don't have one, we have them for free. They're available if you go out the back door here. Uh, There's a room right across the hall, and uh, you can talk to one of our hospitality folks, one of the ushers, and we've got Bibles for free. That's a gift from us to you. Uh, We want everyone that doesn't have a Bible that wants one to get one. Okay? Uh, Praise God. So we're going to continue this week in our verse-by-verse journey through the Psalms. Uh, Last week, we tackled the second half of Psalm 10. Psalm 10. And so today we are going to explore Psalm 11 together. Uh, It's just seven verses long, but it is really full of helpful wisdom and valuable things for us to think about together. Uh, David, here, just to give you some context before we read it, David is responding here to some advice that he was given. Uh, We don't know for sure, but from what we can tell by the situation that's described, it is likely that this psalm came out of the time when King Saul. Was seeking to kill David because of his unrighteous jealousy. So, David's uh, getting some advice about that situation and he's responding to it. And so, let's read the 11th psalm together and uh, then we'll go through it verse by verse together, see what the Lord has for us. Psalm 11, verse 1, here we go. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire, and brimstone. And burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Praise God for his word. So as I said, uh, starting back at the beginning here, David receives some advice here that he doesn't agree with. Let me just show that to you in case it didn't pop out at you. So first he says, in the Lord I take refuge. And he says, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. So the, then the rest of what he's saying here is an es- essentially a response to this advice. So somebody's telling him, you should flee, you should run, because look, the wicked have bent their bow, they're bent on destruction, they're coming after you, and they even go so far as to say, listen man, if the foundations are broken, you got no hope. And so they're, trying, they're painting this picture for David that you don't have a shot here, man. It's gonna go really bad for you. you the only option you have is to get out of here, run. Uh, flee for the mountains. Uh, and so... Um, it's not that unlike some of the counsel that Job received. I don't know if you remember in the midst of that story, Job has some friends that come along, and uh, Job had had lost everything he had. He was sitting in an ash heap. Things were not going good, and here come his friends, you know, and, and we don't really know the intentions of the people that were talking to David here. Commentators disagree. Some think that they were maybe good intentioned with just bad advice. Some people think maybe they were Trying to get him to run so he looked like a coward. Maybe they were really against him. We don't know. And we don't know what Job's friends were really about, but their advice was really bad because they're looking at a situation. They're saying, hey, man, you should just curse God and die. I mean, this is over for you. You're done. And uh, Job's pushback was essentially, listen, man, into this world I came naked and naked I'm going to go and God's sovereign and I trust him. And so that was a good response. And, and honestly, this, this psalm kind of echoes that situation. It's very similar what's happening. You've got people coming with opinions, trying to give David counsel, and uh, his response here turns into a worship song. It's pretty cool. So uh, the truth is, opinions and counsel can come in all different forms, right? Uh, sometimes we ask for it, and sometimes we don't. Has anybody here other than me ever gotten advice that you didn't ask for? Go ahead, put your hand in the air if that's you. You got advice you didn't ask for. If you haven't, you must not have been talking to anybody for the last five years. Um, Is anybody humble enough to admit they've given advice they weren't asked for? Anybody else now? I have done that many times. I'm trying to learn and be better by God's grace. Even worse, I'm going to ask for one more humble admission. Anybody ever given advice that, in hindsight, they know turned out to be terrible? You ever given bad advice and then found out, oh, that wasn't a good... Okay, yeah, me too. Um... The example for me that comes to mind most quickly i 'm sure there's many more than this. I, I was maybe eight or nine years old. I had a cousin. His name was Josh, and we were hanging out together one day and in the neighbor's tree i don 't know what we were doing playing in the neighbor's yard. I guess back then it was cool to do that. you know now kids don't play outside, but anyways so we're playing in the neighbor's yard and there's this willow tree it 's a really cool willow tree and it's like easily climbable, so for young boys you know we're we're having a great time and we discover this thing has this just rock and rope swing, like a big, thick rope like it's supposed to be, you know what I mean? Not one of these ghetto setups like I made when I was a kid with rope that just burnt your hands to pieces. Big, thick rope, like, yes, we're gonna do this. So I jump on this thing, and um, for a little, just so you can get the picture right in your mind, I, I was always a husky kid. Like, I had to wear the husky jeans, and, you know, um, if you don't know what those are, don't worry about it. It's just, there's like a, a big boy section, and I always had to wear those ones. Um, so I was husky, but Josh, at this particular point in his life, was very husky. He was huskier than I was. And so we're both big boys and uh, big boned. And so we're going to do this rope swing. So I do the rope swing, and it goes pretty good. I think, you know, I got a good swing, came back. I think I banged into the tree a little bit. But, you know, it went fairly well. And so I get down, and, you know, he's he's looking at it, and he's starting to get scared and act like he's not going to do it. And so I started giving him advice. Like, man, I just did it. It's going to be fine. You should do it. Dude, it was so fun. Do it. Come on, man, do it, do it. I don't know, come on, you wuss, do it. You know, you can imagine the rest. It took a little bit of coaxing. I gave a lot of advice, how to grab it, how to jump off the tree, all of that. It's going to be fine, man, just do it. Okay, so I get him up there, you know, by insulting his 11 or 12-year-old manhood. It worked, you know, it motivated him. So here he goes, he gets up in the tree, he swings on this rope, and he gets to... (laughs) He gets to the highest point of the arc, you know what I'm talking about? Like the, the, the rope swing, at the very furthest point it's going to get away from the tree, the most velocity, he loses his grip. And he's a big boy, right? So he, And he loses his grip and he doesn't fall like to his side or whatever, he falls straight out like a dive. And because his belly was so big, you ever play like um, dodgeball back when they didn't shelter kids and the, the balls were rubber and it was really fun, right? real dodgeball, not with the little foam balls. They don't even do dodgeball anymore, I feel for my kids. But anyway, so like one of those, he bounced like that when he hit the ground. And so I was, you know, I am having a hard time standing up. I'm laughing so hard. What I didn't know was I saw his belly hit, but I didn't realize that he hit, both his wrists hit the ground first, and so he broke both of his wrists. And so he stood up and he's running around with his arms out like this, screaming, and I'm laughing uncontrollably. You know, then come to find, I got in a lot of trouble. Uh, be- because I laughed, I think primarily, but also because it came out that I coaxed him very heavily into doing this. It was bad advice. We found out after the fact. I shouldn't have pushed him to do the rope swing. There is good advice, and there is bad advice. Uh, but if we are honest, sometimes it's, it's hard to tell the difference. In a world where communication is instant and we have digital platforms where every person, regardless of their qualification, is able to give their opinion, uh, social media, there is a dizzying amount of input out there. Is there not? Uh, there's input, there's information, and there's false information uh, for us to try to sort through, and it can it can be a lot. Uh, there are there are several ways for us to filter and assess input from others. And so we bring this up because it's obvious that David was doing this. He didn't just take this advice because somebody he knew said it. And there's something in that for us. We need to think about this because, you know, sometimes the reality is some of us ask for advice too much and we're too open to input. Some of us don't ask for advice enough and we're too closed off to input. So there's a balance to strike here. But when advice is offered or when we seek counsel, There's some things to think about that would help us sort through good and bad advice. So, what are those filters? What's some things to think about? The first thing we should think about is our motive for getting advice. So, before you even start assessing the information you're hearing or the advice that's being given, it's really wise for us to think about why am I seeking this counsel or why am I listening to this at all? We should ask ourselves questions like, are we seeking counsel? Or advice out of a humble acknowledgement that we don't know what to do in this given situation? Or are we just looking for someone to affirm what we've already decided? Are we looking for backup, right? Are we in an argument about this thing with somebody else and we're looking for someone to take our side, right? Because that's a busted up motive from the jump, right? That's a prideful uh, attempt from the beginning. So you're not really even looking for advice, you're just hoping to find someone that agrees with you so that you feel affirmed and or better about whatever you're about to do that's not a good approach to seeking counsel doesn't even really count uh, it 's just prideful and sinful so we should look at our own motives first as we assess uh, advice coming in the, the second thing we should look at I think is do the best we can to discern the other person's motive for giving the advice their motive right because a good question when receiving counsel from someone is, is right off the bat, I would ask. like, Do they love you? Does this person care about you? Do they have a motive of genuine care for you? Do they know you? Uh, because the reality is a lot of people give advice because they make money doing that. right? And so it doesn't necessarily mean that they care about you or they even care about the outcome of the situation they're advising you about. I think it's very wise for us to pay attention to, does this person really love me? Have they shown in any way a a propensity for looking out for me or a willingness to serve me or care about me in a situation other than when uh, there's advice to be given? Does that person really care for me? Now, you can't always know motives, right? And sometimes people are good at hiding them, but we should at least ask that question uh, before we start eating things uh, hook, line, and sinker. Another good question to ask or think through when you're receiving counsel from somebody is their qualifications. Now, we need to be humble about that because some people think they are so much more qualified than any other human that no one can give them advice. Well, that's really problematic, and it's prideful, and it's going to lead you to a lonely and probably um, vastly uninformed life because there's always people that know more about different things than, than we do. It's part of uh, the diversity God built into the world, right? Some people are just better at other things. Their knowledge base is... is more full in a different sector. And so that's why God brings us together in things like his church so that we bring all of our gifts, talents, and knowledge together, and it allows us to accomplish the mission better. So that's good, but we should ask their qualifications. One thing I would ask is, is this a godly person? Not just do they know their stuff, but is this a godly person? How do I ask that? how, How do I assess that? Is there evidence in their life that they take the word of God into account as they make decisions? Am I going to be taking advice from somebody that, you know, may, maybe they're real sharp, but they don't ask motive questions. They don't think about the the why of things. Um, and is is that going to make this advice potentially tainted? So, uh, we need to ask about qualifications, but I also want to make sure we don't overcorrect on that and make sure we, we make a proper distinction, right, because the truth is, um, if you need advice about how to fix your car, you don't have to ask a pastor, right? Like, there are there are there are certain things that you can you can get advice about, and whether or not that person is loves you or is following after God is probably not going to be as big of a factor, right? If, if they just need to find a vacuum leak so that your car runs right, you know that's that's different than um, how should I. Re- deal with my wife, how should I deal with my kids, what should, you know, different things that would be governed by the standards of, of the Lord Jesus. So uh, maybe one question you would ask out of this, and really the context of this, it seems that the people that are talking to David are people he has relationship with. So we're not talking about kind of the example I just gave. We're talking about people talk speaking into situations like this, where somebody's struggling, There's a, there's a real serious issue here, and And issues of morality and like big life decisions are involved. Like David is looking at, go flee to the mountains and be a hermit to avoid this danger or stay in here, trust God, and see how that goes. Um, And so that's that's really more what we're talking about. So a question that would come up, and we're talking about the context of advice and counsel within relationships to varying degrees... If what I'm saying is that we should ask questions like, well, do they really love me? Is this a godly person that I'm listening to? Am am I seeking counsel of people that have a a biblical worldview uh, and are going to see things as much as we can uh, the way God would see it? If that's the case, does that mean that we should not have friendships then with people who don't love Jesus? And the, the short answer to that is that's not what that means. I would just call to your attention the fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners, according to Matthew 11, verse 19, and so we should be too. Uh, even as a part of the, the mission of sharing the gospel with people, we should have relationships and friendships with people that don't know and love Jesus. Uh, and part of why this is, I, I, as I was looking at this and, and, and seeing the situation David's in, A similar situation that I've been approached about recently kind of came up, and so I want to address it out of this set of ideas. Um, I've had a couple of godly young men approach me recently and ask about how to navigate friendships with non-believing friends or sometimes an even more sad situation where there's some that claim to follow Jesus, but they are just in blatant rebellion against his teachings and not... uh, Doing anything that would, would show fruit of a, of a life of someone following after Christ. And so, in looking at this and in advising them, and, and now just broadly talking to you about it, when we have friendships and relationships with those uh, who don't belong to Jesus, or who, who don't love Him, the, the key to navigating those relationships is a word called influence. And I'm going to take some time on this because it's really important. And you're going to be tempted to think that. I'm sounding haughty as if, well, Christians are always better than somebody that's not a Christian. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. I think I'll prove it to you by the end, but I just want to preempt uh, you may be thinking that, okay? So, and, and we're talking here again uh, on kind of bigger picture questions. I would call, there's there's kind of four big questions I think most kind of existential situations would fall into. These big questions are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. These are like the four big questions every human's grappling with and trying to find answers for whether they're aware of it or not. We are, we are programmed to search out answers on origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. What do I mean by that? Origin, I'm talking about answering the question like where did we come from? And, and I don't know if you can recognize in yourself a, a sense of desire to know about that, but that's there in every human. Where did we come from? Meaning, why am I here? What is my purpose? You ever thought that? You ever heard someone else express, like, I just want to know what I'm here for. What, what am I supposed to do? So you've got origin, meaning, and then you've got morality. What is, what is right and wrong? How do we know? Is there a standard? And then destiny. Destiny meaning, where are we headed? Like, is this it? Or is there something after this? Where are we all going to? And so these, on these big questions, we, we have to have discernment about which way influence flows. Uh, and again, I just want to say this plainly. This doesn't mean I can't learn something from someone that is not a Christian. Of course. But I have to be careful to know the difference between helpful information and the principles that govern our actions when we're speaking of influence. Uh, by way of example, I'll just say this. So I have, I've invested in real estate off and on since my early 20s. And in doing that, I've met a lot of people. And I've had many friends and acquaintances who didn't follow Jesus, but who were better connected, and they knew more about different strategies in that world than I did. And so I have been able to learn many helpful things from some of them. Uh, but I had to be careful about buying into their kind of total investing philosophy. And it was not so much because of how they invest. It was more about why they invest. Because many of these guys that I knew, I could almost guess if I asked them, what's, like, what's your goal, man? Why are you doing this? Many of them want to retire by age 45. They want to have nice cars. They want to have a nice house or two. Uh, and they want to go on a lot of vacations. This, this literally, this is the purpose that drives them to do what they do. This is why they're out there looking for deals and, and putting the work in, right? And the sad thing is, to the average American, that sounds perfectly fine. Like nothing there would be contrary to the good old American dream. However, for a follower of Christ, th- this really is not an acceptable motivation or end goal, okay? Now give me a second. If you're, if you're irritated by that, just walk with me. None of these things in and of themselves are bad necessarily, but they are pitiful and woefully inadequate as a primary purpose. If you're answering the question of meaning for your life, why am I here? If, if all I can draw out of you is, man, I'd really like to be retired by 45. I'd like a nice house here, a nice house wherever I like to go a couple of fly rides, and I like to vacay a lot. Like, that's it. That's it. That's the high goal. That's the high bar. That is, for a follower of Christ, that's inadequate. Uh, These things should never be the way we measure whether or not we are successful. Success for the Christian is to fulfill the purpose for which God created us. And the truth is, this looks different in some ways for each person, right? God didn't create, uh, a, you know, he didn't have a gingerbread assembly line where every one of us looks the same. Every one of our purpose is exactly the same, especially in the specifics of like what job you do, where you live. There's, there's differences and nuance in the plan God has for each of us. Um, but every follower of Jesus should measure their success in life by this standard. What is success? How do you define success if you're a follower of Jesus? How well am I obeying him? Success for the Christian looks like obeying Jesus for a long time. That's what it looks like. Now, there can be other things in and under that, but that should be the umbrella. That should be the big goal, obeying Jesus for a long time. The questions for us to gauge success and purpose should not be how much money do I have, uh, how, how much do people respect me right some people aren 't motivated by money let 's not put it cast everyone in the same mold. Some people could care less they 'd really like being respected. They really like people uh, showing them and giving them reverence that shouldn 't be the question. Uh, it shouldn 't be how early can I retire the question should be. Am I loving God? Am I loving people? And am I making disciples? Because broadly, this is, God has revealed this as his mission for every one of us. Listen, he's called me to do a different kind of work than you do, right? And that's great. But broadly, no matter whether you are a bus driver, a realtor, whether you are a hairstylist or you do customer service, whatever your job is, you're a student, whatever you're doing right now in this season of life, all of that could very well be within the, the plan and the will of God for you. But all of us together share this overarching set of standards and, and commands from the Lord for us to love him, to love other people, and to make disciples. And so if we're really gauging success, that should be the measuring stick we're using. How does that look in our lives? Uh, the question, one of the questions should be, am I managing well what God has entrusted to me? Am I being radically generous with the resources that I control as Jesus has been with me in giving his very life for me? These are the kind of questions as you're trying to gauge success that we should be asking. A lot of times we don't, right? A lot of times we get pulled into the narrative that everyone else is looking at. Uh, A lot of times we get pulled into the standards of success that everyone else uses. Um, And that measuring stick just, it leads to disappointment because here's the problem. There's been a lot of people, guys, there's been a lot of people that using that measuring stick and using that purpose and that drive, like a lot of my friends, investors that I know, that they've, they've used that ruler and it's like, okay, if I can get to there, if I can get retired so I don't have to work anymore, I hate working, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, hey man, I got a verse. You know, no. And if you want to retire early, praise God, I just hope it's to do gospel work, free your hands up to tell more people about Jesus. That's a great plan. Hallelujah. Do that. That's awesome if you got a way to do that. I'll help you. But there's there's guys I've known personally, and and you see it in the news, man. People will use that measuring stick of hitting the world's model for success, wealth, whatever that looks like, uh, freedom, and they're miserable. Like, they hit it. They get to the top of that thing, and then it doesn't do what they thought it was going to do. It doesn't fulfill that sense and that desire, that need for a purpose greater than the rat race. Um. I hate that it's so recent, and I'm not trying to use it as an example and be insensitive. But there was the guy just recently. I can't remember the name of the band, but a band all of you know. The lead singer, the guy, just offed himself, killed himself. This guy was rich, and I heard these guys talking about on the radio. I don't know who he is really, and I don't know what his wife looks like. They're like his wife was beautiful. He had beautiful children. Lived in, you know, lived in LA. I mean, how many people thought if I could just move to LA? Listen, I lived there for 10 years. It's not as great as you think. Furthermore, weather doesn't drive happiness as much as you think it does. I know Cincinnati weather is a bummer sometimes, but God establishes the times and places that we live, and he's called us to preach the gospel here. So hallelujah. Unless he calls you somewhere else, and then we'll send you with a blessing. But the bottom line is this guy had everything that so many people use uh, as a measuring stick for success and Something deep was missing. There was a misery there that he got to the point where he believed the only way to solve that was to kill himself. And uh, suicide rates among the mega rich are actually higher than the general population. And so uh, that's a tragic truth, but it should be informative for us. So we should ask those other questions Am I being generous? Am I doing Am I being faithful with what Jesus has given me to work with? Um, and I just want to say, I said all of that. And it's very easy, though, because I've, I want to confess a sinful tendency in me. I have I've had an issue with getting off balance on what we just talked about. And instead of seeing it the right way, I, I just think, okay, well, wealthy is bad. And that is absolutely not the case. The truth is, the Bible's very clear. There are righteous poor people, and there are righteous rich people. There are wicked poor people, and there are wicked rich people, okay? Socioeconomic status does not determine righteousness, which is the issue. Righteousness is what God's looking at. Uh, And the truth is, some of you have a gift for business or some other thing that gives you great income potential, and I'm not saying you should bury that town in the ground and not use it. If you do that, that will be sinful, what I'm saying is that you have to watch who your heroes are, stay humble, and be mindful of the influences that drive you. Is that fair? Does that make sense? You've got to keep that in balance because a lot of people like to, they want to stamp, and people do it on both sides, they want to they associate righteousness with a certain socioeconomic status. Well, God likes poor people, or poor people are lazy, God likes rich people. And if you try to, if you try to make that thing this, this simple black and white formula like that, you've totally missed it. That's not what it looks like. Uh, righteousness is not determined by bank account or the size of your rims or uh, the square footage of your house. So. Now, some of you, I, I'm hoping some of you have this question. I hope some of you are arguing with me right now in your mind. What? Yes. Because that would tell me that you're engaging with what we're talking about and you're thinking through implications. So I'm hoping some of you are having this thought. Isn't it pretentious to assume influence should only flow one way in a friendship because I'm a Christian and they aren't? I'm hoping some of you thought that. Like, that seems a little haughty. Good. I'm glad you're thinking about it. And I would just say to you, I would would, would submit to you, it can. It could be that way, but it depends on how you approach it. And I want to give you an example. Of, of how to think about this, how to approach this idea of influence in a relationship. Why are we talking about this? Because David got bad advice from friends that probably thought they were helping him, and sometimes that happens to us, and we didn't know how to humbly deal with advice, and we need to know how to humbly give advice, okay? Because uh, sometimes we are on both ends of, of the spectrum here. So I, I want, I need you to imagine something with me so that you can kind of grab a hold of this this idea. How do we not end up being pretentious if in a relationship between us and somebody that doesn't believe in Christ, we're, we're mindful of influence and that influence is only flowing one way, that we're, they're not influencing us on those big four questions, but that we are, we are influencing them. Why is that not pretentious? Why is that not assumptive that, well, well aren't you saying you're better than them? You, you, people have done it that way and it never works. And it always causes damage. So just imagine with me that you're walking along a wooded path one day. And you, you turn a corner and you find this man. He's dressed in rags. He's filthy. And he's sitting there and he's, he's reaching down. He's, he's grabbing handfuls of tiny rocks and just eating them. He's sitting there chomping on rocks. His mouth is bloody. His teeth are broken. But he just keeps putting his hand down, grabbing those rocks and sticking them in his mouth. So if you've actually imagined that, I'm hoping that to some degree you're stirred with compassion. If you're a follower of Jesus and you found this situation, I'm hoping you would want to help. The key to whether or not you can really help him, however, it hinges on how you see yourself in the situation. Here's the question. You imagined this person that I told you to imagine, this, this dirty person sitting in rags, eating rocks, mouth all bloody... But how do you imagine yourself in the situation? Are you a successful person that is way smarter than this rock eater? Do you talk down to him and and tell him he's dumb for sitting in the dirt eating those rocks? Or do you know the truth? The truth is you are no better than him. Do you smile, revealing your own broken teeth? Because you used to eat rocks too. You were destroying yourself. Because you didn't know there was something better. Do you pull some bread from your bag and offer it to him? Explaining that someone had to show you where that bread was. And how eating that bread was infinitely better than chewing on those rocks. You see, if you approach non-Christians, friends, with an elite attitude. Because you have believed the lie that you're superior to them. They will never listen. And you will hurt instead of help every time. But if you approach them as a beggar who just wants to show another beggar where the bread of life can be found, you'll have a chance to help them. The solution, however, so you got that. Let's pause a second. So do you see how... I'm just going to say this. And then hopefully you'll see it. The solution in that situation is never to sit down and eat rocks with them. So, <laughs> then do we see what I mean by discerning the flow of influence in a relationship? This is not elitist Christians who have found the truth, or have the truth, or we're so smart, and so everyone that we come in contact with, we're looking to fix them, and we're looking to, to you know, give them um, what, what all of our superiority can offer. No, no, no. We understand that, yes, people who don't know Christ oftentimes in searching for answers for those four big questions we talked about oftentimes they are doing the equivalent of eating rocks. They are doing behaviors, they are chasing after things that ultimately are busting their mouth up. Who knows what's going on in their intestines, right? Like but they're eating rocks and they're destroying themselves. Oftentimes that's what it looks like. But we can't come along to that situation and say, "Are you stupid? I can't believe you would eat rocks. How dumb are you?" Instead, we have to be humble enough to understand our teeth are still busted too. We've got scars. From when we did that, and we need to know that we're just humble beggars that by grace and mercy alone, someone gave us some bread. We need to be willing to share it. We need to be willing to take that person by the hand and lead them to get where, find out where the bread comes from. That, of course, is from the hands of King Jesus himself. If you approach it like that, then I would say no, it is not haughty or pretentious to be mindful of which way influence flows in a relationship with a non-believer. Because your other option is sit down and eat rocks with them, and that doesn't help. And some people have tried that. Well, maybe if I eat rocks with them for a while, then, you know, they'll trust me. No, then you'll just both have bloody mouths. <laughs> and you both be jacked up. We see here the way David approaches this. David realizes that he is getting bad advice, and he answers it with truth. Now notice, there's a lot of things he could have said. He doesn't answer these, these friends back or whoever this is. He doesn't answer them back when they say, man, it's bad. The whole thing's bad. People are after you. The bow is bent. They're hiding in the shadows, man. They're going to get you. You need to run. You need to fly like a bird to its mountain and get up out of here. His response is not, look, guys, I killed Goliath. I'm the baddest man there ever was, all right? I'm not running from anybody. What does he say? What, what is his response? Where does his heart and mind turn when his friends tell him there is no hope? When they tell him he should just run away? What does he turn to? David's heart and mind turns to the sovereignty, the faithfulness, and the character of God. Let's look at that together. This is so verses one through three is is a summary. David's summarizing this bad advice he got. Verses four through seven. Or kind of a summary of his response to it. So here's here's what he says, verse four. He starts out by saying, "The Lord is in His holy temple; the Lord's throne is in heaven." Now you might think this is just poetic fill, right? Like we know the Psalms are songs that they were sung, and so that, that's just kind of a good phrase to go in a worship song, right? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Some of you might not see a connection between these guys telling David, you're in serious danger, things are about to go bad for you, bro, and you need to run, because they're going to get you. Um, but I just want to say to you, it is, it is 100% proper that this is the first thing David mentions, and this is not just poetic fill. This is the key the rest of what he says flows out of the truth he expresses in verse 4. And I want you to stretch with me to, to, to force your mind and heart to make the connection between David's trouble and this statement and why it matters. Because this is the summary statement that for those who follow Christ, if they will grab a hold of this truth and actually run the difficulty of their life through the grid of this truth, it will matter every single time. And it will help you then to respond properly. What is he saying by saying this? First of all, he's saying the Lord is in his holy temple. In that day, there was a temple. There was a spot, right? This is before Christ came. Uh, This is before he made believers, the New Testament temple, the Holy Spirit. There was a physical spot. First, it was a tabernacle, a moving tent, and then uh, a temple. And what what is being said here is that the the Lord is in his holy temple. The the, the Lord is is not moving from his spot. He is... He is with us, right? And so it's, it's, David is he's drawing upon this truth that God has spoken throughout the scriptures up until this point that I am with you. Do not fear because I'm with you. Do not fear because I'm God. I'm with you. You can go into the land of Canaan. You can take that land. Yes, they're bigger than you. Yes, their walls are thicker than you can imagine. Yes, if you just look at the stats, you guys don't have a chance. But go and don't fear Because I'm with you. And so David, first of all, he 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 his first response as he begins to lay out to these guys why he's not gonna run to the mountain is because God has made promises that he's gonna be with me and he is right where he said he'll be, and he's not gonna change. That's the first thing. The second thing he says is: the Lord's throne is in heaven. This is an appeal. To, there's, there's so many promises of God that if we would keep them in the forefront of our mind when, when difficulty comes, when, when bad advice happens or, or when our, our, our life seems like the foundations are being shook out from underneath us, if this truth right here was set as a, as a, as a cornerstone in our heart, if, if we appealed to it in the midst of those times of difficulty, we could not be shaken. What does he mean the Lord's throne is in heaven? It means that thing that we sing all the time. It means the thing that I say all the time, and maybe you say it all the time too, friends. But We need to renew our awe at this fact. The Lord's throne is in heaven. What does that mean? It's above every other throne. What does it mean when I say the Lord's throne is above every other throne? It means this. It comes down to this one word that we should know well, that we should relish, and that we should find peace in. He is sovereign, He is the king of all kings. His throne is above every throne. And when David is faced with this advice from his friends, look, man, it's about to go bad for you. Their bows are bent. They're going to get you. If you don't run and hide, they're going to kill you, bro. What does he go to first? They may be doing all that, but my God is sovereign. My God is king over all. And so because of that, because of that simple fact, First of all, I know he's going to fight for me, but secondly, here's here's how far the peace goes in God's sovereignty. David has to be reasoning. First of all, God's sovereign, so I'm not going to worry simply because of that fact. He's Lord over all. Secondly, he's sovereign. So if they get me, he's sovereign. And he's already relishing in in verse 7. The upright are going to behold his face. He's already thinking about the thing we sung about today. When I take my final breath... I'm going to see the face of the king of kings, the sovereignty of God, friends. Let me lay this before you. And for some of you, there's a distance in the synopsis, man. It hasn't connected for you yet. And if it hasn't, if if, if you're looking at me and saying, wow, that guy's real excited about uh, the Lord's throne is in heaven. I mean, we all knew that, right? If, 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 the, if the sovereignty of God, if, if just thinking about that doesn't bring peace to you, if it doesn't immediately begin to answer the situations in your life where you are tempted to have anxiety and worry and be vexed, if it doesn't apply itself that way for you, I'm asking you to pray and ask God to help bridge the connection in your mind and heart so that when your face was something like this, this was not David you know, David's food came wrong at the restaurant, right? Some of the times the stuff that we just want to lose our minds about, whatever it is, I got a flat tire, or, you know, the things that were, my whole world's crumbling. This is a real deal thing. There's people with bows and arrows that want to shoot him, probably in the chest, okay? So this is not your garden variety every, you know, Wednesday, mm, it's the middle of the week, and I wish I didn't have to work issue. This is a real deal life and death situation. And this guy has people probably that he trusts and, and that probably love him saying to him, hey, man, this is so bad. You should run. What's his thought? What's his response? What's his, his, the first place he goes? God is sovereign. His throne is in heaven. His throne is above every other throne. And so really, that answers the whole thing. And that's what I'm trying to say to you, friends. I'm trying to give you a gift I'm trying to give you something that will help you in your life and will help you to serve God faithfully and it will stabilize you. You will be less likely to be rocked when the inevitable storms of life come. If you can rejoice in, truly believe, and understand why the sovereignty of God matters. He is in control and he is the king over everything. And that's never going to change. There's not a close second contender that could come and try to take that spot from him. He rules and reigns alone. I know for some of you, you still don't know why I'm so excited. I I fully get that. And I'm I'm legitimately asking you, this is not just just preacher stuff. I'm asking you, please pray. Please ask God to help you understand why it matters so much that he's sovereign and why that really answers every issue in your life. Because I'm not saying... We won't also have to trust additional promises of God as we, as we move forward through difficulties, but the very fact that he's sovereign gives us, it gives us a cornerstone, an immovable foundation with which we can stand and move from there. His sovereignty. It means safety for us. Uh, it, it is exciting. It is exciting that we don't serve some lesser God. It is exciting that the bread of life uh, has found our hands and been put in our mouths and that God has Brought us into uh, light instead of darkness. That we don't serve some lesser deity or just serve our own carnal actions uh, and desires. Uh, it, it's incredible. God's sovereignty is the first place he goes. We should never get tired of thinking about that, uh, because it is—it it literally is the greatest potential source of peace we have. The sovereignty of God, the kingship of our Lord. It's awesome. Uh, second half of verse four. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. This is part of this. It, I know it's hard sometimes to see how it ties together. This is an extension of David's thought that God is sovereign. The fact that he tests both, uh, he, he tests the sons of men, right? Because it goes on in verse 5 to say he tests the righteous and the wicked. His, his thought process is still tied to the sovereignty of God. He's okay with the fact that this situation, there's a couple, there's a couple of possibilities. First of all, um, you know, when difficulty comes, sometimes it's self-caused. You know, I, I don't think this one was. It doesn't seem that that's the case. I don't think David was lipping off to a bunch of people down at the city gates that had bones and arrows, right? That doesn't seem to be the context. Uh, it's probably Saul unrighteously jealous. So sometimes we cause issues for ourselves. Sometimes difficulty comes simply because the world is jacked. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The world is broken. The world is cursed. A lot of things happen that wouldn't happen if sin had never uh, come on the scene, okay? But then there's there's this other category, and David's fully okay with it. Some of you may not be, but David is. He said, the Lord tests both those who are his and the wicked, And so he knows that potentially this situation right here, this imminent danger, could be a test for him. It could be something that God is allowing. You know, God's sovereignty plays into how you can get to the place where you're okay with this. How can I be okay with the fact that I, you know, I don't know if this is what's happening, but maybe God's allowing these guys with bows and arrows that want to kill me to be out here after me to see what I'll do about it. How, How do I get okay with that? Well, part of how you get okay with that is you understand that part of the picture of God's sovereignty is something called omniscience. That means he knows everything. And the Bible also says he's the alpha and the omega. So all the way back and all the way forward, he knows it all. God exists outside of time. He knows how David's going to react to this. He knows how that situation is going to go. And so if God allows the test to come, we can take some comfort in knowing he already knows the outcome. I hope that matters to you. It does matter whether you know it matters to you or not he's very comfortable with it. So he says, his eyes behold. So he knows, he knows this isn't a result here of the fact that God just didn't see these guys bending their bows and, and these guys wanting to come and kill him. It's not that God took vacation and doesn't know about this situation. God's in the mix. So again, I'm not running partially just because of that. I know God knows and I know some of this could be God allowing this difficulty so that I grow through it. So that maybe God's forming something in me. Maybe, maybe, maybe one day in my future, if you know anything about David's life, if indeed this came out of the time where Saul's pursuing him, David's going to go on to be king of Israel. He's going to have to face a lot of enemies. There's going to be a lot of people that want to come and kill him and all the people he's responsible for. He's going to have to get used to having a spine of steel and not running every single time there's a conflict. So it very well could be that in the midst of this, God's cultivating something in him. God's growing something in him. God's allowing him to go through this difficulty. He's gonna be with him in the midst of it, but he's gonna shepherd him through this so that he doesn't run now, so that he doesn't run later. Because right now it's just his life on the line. Later on, and there's times when David says, I'm not running because of because of what? He's always talking about the people. He's always talking about the people of Jerusalem. He's got that shepherd's heart that, that God put in him. He cares about the people more than he cares about himself. This very well could be a part of that process. David doesn't know all that right now, does he? He doesn't have the benefit of knowing the rest of the history that we know. But right now, in this moment, without knowing what's coming, he's able to trust, even if God's testing me right now. I know he's sovereign, I know he has a purpose, and I know it's okay. I think it's, you know, I mentioned David and Goliath, and I don't, wanna, I don't want you to misinterpret that. I think it's very telling for us that as he responds to this bad advice, he doesn't say, I'm not afraid because I killed Goliath. Now, he may very well have been thinking in his mind. He may very well have reached back to the testimony of the fact that he was standing in the Valley of Elah one time, facing a giant that the entire army of Israel was terrified of, and that God delivered him, right? The key there is he, he knew who delivered him then, and so he had confidence in who's going to deliver him now. His confidence was not in himself. He didn't leave that Goliath situation with a bad man complex thinking, anybody that touches me is going down because I'm David, right? God had had taken him through that situation and many others and shown him, right? You get the lion, the bear, then Goliath. You see how God tested him. You see how God allowed situations to come, kept him through it, and was building him into something. And you can say, yeah, well, that's great for David, God's no respecter of persons, friend. He's, he's dealing with you in the same way. Sometimes we don't react like David, though. Sometimes somebody comes, starts whispering in our ear, saying, man, this is really bad. You should freak out and give up. And we're like, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> right? Sometimes we just jump off the rails, and we get out of the process that, that, that God was doing with us, and we don't trust him, and, and we end up sabotaging. And then, you know, months go by, and years go by, and then we're, we're frustrated with God because there's no obvious progress and it's like, you know, we, we got to go back there and deal with that thing before I can take you to the next thing. He loves you. And he wants to walk this process with you. He wants to build you into something. Will you trust him? Will you go with him is the question. That So verse four, he trusts in, in uh, God's sovereignty. He Going into verse five, he knows that, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. So he, whatever God's doing, how, what, what, whatever the source of this is, he trusts God's character in it. Um, and he knows the one who loves violence, he says, his, his soul hates. And so he knows God's going to deal justly with anybody that's doing wicked, anybody that's scheming, anybody that's doing evil. So David's reaction here also isn't, um, well, I'm going to beat him to it. I'm going to bend my bow, and I'm going to go shoot them. You know what I mean? His, his, he's able to, to put his trust in God. The, in, in the totality of all of it, he's going to handle it. Uh, verse 6, all, you know, verse, so the one who loves violence, his soul hates, upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So he's, he's expressing in kind of poetic, pretty colorful language, if these people keep seeking after destroying someone that, that God loves, he knows it's gonna go bad for them. And so he declares that confidently. God will deal justly with those who are scheming wickedly. And that's been a that's been a theme that has been woven through the last several Psalms if you've been tracking with us. And I know for some of you t- on, on that too, that hasn't that hasn't really excited you yet, right? That God's gonna deal justly with the wicked. You're like, okay, yeah, I mean that sounds right but but the connection of what that really means for you, right? That because that's true, because God will deal with the wicked justly because his vengeance is total and complete. And if people continue to rebel and continue to try to hurt those that God loves, that he's going to deal justice, it frees you from having to feel like you have to, hold, you have to execute vengeance or hold bitterness. You are free then to forgive. You're free then to give that to God and let him handle that part. And I guess that only matters to you if you've ever carried a burden of bitterness or feeling a sense of vengeance. And, and maybe it does matter more to me than it does many people because I've done that. I have lived with the darkness of feeling like vengeance was my responsibility. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's a sinful tendency for me to this day. I Every single time uh, I'm faced with a situation, it's primarily if somebody's Acting like they're gonna, or says they're gonna, or whatever, hurt somebody I love and care about, I have to go through a process every time of taking that to the Lord and trusting that He'll handle it, because if I'm just being honest, my first reaction is not what David's talking about here, and just trusting God's vengeance. It's, I want to deputize myself as God's right hand of vengeance upon the earth and, you know, handle business, as the boys used to say on the street. And so, uh, but that's, I don't have to do that. And if I realize how freeing that is, it, it, and I do, um, man, that's it's a weight I don't have to carry. I don't, I don't have to go get into that mix. Um, I can lay that before the Lord and know he'll handle it. What a beautiful promise. Uh, that's, that's really good. Uh, verse 7, he says, the Lord uh, is righteous. He loves Righteousness and the upright will behold his face. And so he says all this other stuff. He's trusting in God's sovereignty. He's totally cool with whatever God's doing in the midst of this difficulty. He knows that he can grow through that. He's going to trust the Lord. No matter what happens, he belongs to God, and he knows God will be faithful. And then he ends the psalm with this, for the Lord is righteous, right? So I told you at the beginning, he appealed to his, his sovereignty and his faithfulness, and now he, he just appeals to his character. This First of all, he's like, God's in control. And then he's like, this is what I know God's going to do. And this last part is like, and this is who God is. Like, I just, I know who he is. And that's why I'm not running to the mountain. I'm not running scared. And here's, here's the last reason. The Lord is righteous. And he loves righteousness. And I know I'm going to see his face. And so again, there is a comfort in knowing that God is sovereign, that God's going to do, he's faithful to do what he said he's going to do, and just to know his character. He's righteous. I can trust him. And ultimately, no matter what happens, I'm his. I'm going to see his face. And so I don't have to worry, and I don't have to run, and I don't have to be overcome by fear. I think that's helpful for us. I, I hope you caught the three. When you're faced with adversity, friends, when you're faced with difficulty, trial, and trouble, I think David has set a pattern for us here. First of all, don't take advice from fools. Don't be a fool that gives bad advice. Be humble in taking advice. Be humble in giving advice, and have a grid. Run it through something, because... You're getting advice every day. It's not always even friends, man. You're being bombarded with something we call marketing that is really just different forms of advice. You should do this because it'll make you happy. You should do this because it'll make you happy. You should do this because it'll make you skinny. You should do this because it'll make you uh, fill in your adjective, right, that they're hoping to catch you on some inner desire that they can then capitalize on. Run advice through the grid that we talked about. Is this coming from somebody that loves me? Is Is this godly? Does this make sense from a biblical worldview? Uh, does it matter in the grand scheme of things? So we've got that. We've got David responding here, uh, showing us that, that running to sovereign, the sovereignty, faithfulness, and character of God should bring us great comfort and, and stability in the midst of unstable situations. I want to focus in as we close here on 6 and 7. Now, David was no doubt focused on the details of this particular situation in writing this psalm. Okay? He's, he, is, he is writing a worship song out of this, this difficulty of people giving him bad advice and it being because of a bad situation and then what his response is. That's, that's what's flowing out of his heart. So he's dealing with that and he's writing about this specific situation in Psalm 11. But we know from uh, we know from many other psalms that uh, David knows neither he or any other man or woman is going to be counted righteous or upright on their own, right? He says, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. So he's talking about eternal hope there. And you, you could read this and you could misunderstand. Because it says the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. You could you could think, well, that means, okay, so those that do what David's talking about right here perfectly, then they're going to be the ones that see the Lord's face, right? So if they respond right, if they trust God's sovereignty, they trust his faithfulness, they trust his character, if they tell the friends with the bad advice to pounce off, right? So if we nail this, then we'll be upright, we'll be righteous, we'll get to see God's face. David didn't believe that, and he didn't even have the full gospel. Let me just read Psalm 62.1 to you. This is David, I'm, I'm telling you, he didn't elaborate fully on his theology of salvation here in Psalm 11. But I'm, I want to I show you what David thinks about it. Psalm 62, 1. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. The truth is, every one of us has sinned, and none of us has lived in perfect righteousness. We all deserve to drink the cup described in verse 6, and the only reason we won't is because someone else drank it for us. Let me read that to you again. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Now let me read you another verse. This is Matthew 26, verse 39. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Friend, David knew this, and we know this. This cup, in verse 6, of fire and scorching wind and brimstone. That is what each and every one of us has earned. Every one of us should have to drink the full contents of the cup of the wrath of God. But Jesus took that cup and he drained it all the way to the bottom so that you wouldn't have to. How did he do that? The Bible says the way that God diverted his wrath that every one of us deserved None of us is perfect. None of us is righteous in and of ourselves. Every one of us should have had to drink out of that cup. The way God did is he sent Jesus, who lived an absolutely perfect life, never sinned once, and then stepped in and took the sacrifice. He, he paid the price. He took the punishment you and I should have deserved. Drinking the cup of God's wrath is, is, is more figurative. Jesus it was, his punishment wasn't figurative. He was beat and tortured, slain and murdered like a thief, and hung next to a couple. His blood flowed down a rugged wooden cross, and salvation was purchased for mankind. The Bible says he didn't stay dead. He took his last breath upon that cross. They took him down, they wrapped him up, they put him in a tomb, and three days later, just like he said he would, he rose from the grave. The cup of wrath that was deserved by you and me was drank fully by our Savior, and then he conquered sin and death by rising from the grave. The Bible says that in a way that doesn't really seem to add up, it says that if we will trust what I just told you, if we will believe in that gospel message if we will trust the truth of the word of God, that yes, we are sinners, undeserving of God's love and mercy, but that Jesus paid a price so that we could receive his righteousness, if we will believe and trust in that, if we will trust that indeed he did rise from the grave, just like he said he did, and indeed he did conquer death on our behalf, if we can trust that by faith, which is not going to be a decision you just make on your own, please let me say that plainly. The Bible is clear. Faith is a gift given to us by God. And so our prayer is right now, if you're somebody that's on the fence about this, if you're somebody that's not sure, our prayer is that the God of the universe would stir in you and would pour in you the faith required to believe this gospel message because, friend, this is what it comes down to. Whether or not your life matters, whether or not you have any purpose, and for sure what your destiny is is not determined by how many good things you do while you're here, how many bad things you do while you're here, how successful you are by the world standard or any other measuring stick other than this right here, friend, hear me. Do you believe in what Jesus did and said? And do you believe what the word of God says about your salvation? Do you believe what David believed as his soul waited silently for God, his salvation alone? We can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. We need Jesus. The question is, will we humbly receive that? And then will we rejoice in it? Will we live in light of it? That is the call to each and every one of us. May we be a people who humbly seek godly advice. May we be a people who humbly give godly advice. And may we be a people who trust God completely, his sovereignty, faithfulness, and character. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for the truth contained within Psalm 11. We thank you. That up to this point in David's life, Lord, you had had done enough. You had shown yourself strong and faithful in his life. That he was able to respond to a group of people telling him, you're done for. You better run. Your only chance is to flee. He was able to look them back in the face. And he was able to appeal to your sovereignty, your kingship, to your faithfulness that's been proven, and to your holy character. His trust was in you. God, may we please receive what we should receive from this. God, for some of us, it should be conviction because if we're honest, we don't respond this way. When difficulty comes, we freak out. The last thought we have is about your sovereignty or your good character. So for some of us, Lord, repentance is required as we we think about these things. We need your help to respond better to difficulty, to trust you in the midst of adversity to be okay, even if it's something that you're allowing to come to grow us and sharpen us and make us into something, to totally, completely, really, actually trust you, Lord. For those of us that haven't done that well, we repent, Lord. For some of us, we know we've received bad advice and we've bought it, we've taken it and we've ran with it, and it's led to destruction. Or some of us have eaten more rocks than than the others. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for that. Help us to see when what we're doing is self-destructive. Help us to see when we're looking for answers in places where we're never going to find them. Lord, please help us to understand that if we continue to grope in darkness, we're never going to find anything, that what we need is light, and you are the source of that. Help us to yield, oh God, to trust you, to acknowledge humbly that we need you. Lord, we need you. Father, help us not to be haughty. As people that know you and love you, and we have the opportunity to have relationships with people that don't, God, please help us never, ever assume we're better or assume that we're more enlightened or assume we're somehow smarter because we have received grace and mercy. Lord, may we always see ourselves as beggars who somebody graciously came and put bread in our hands and that we would offer humbly that bread to others. God, help us be prepared that even sometimes when we do it that way that people won't receive it. Lord, in those situations we trust you. Lord God, we ask that everything that you've dealt with us about through the midst of this Bible teaching and this psalm, God, that it would would take root in us, Lord. Please don't don't let us fall prey to that temptation where we come and we sit and we nod and we, we intellectually agree but we don't Allow it to change us and transform us, Lord. We don't want to fall into the trap of being hearers of the word and not doers. So please, God, the things you've dealt with is about. May we we continue to submit those to you, to ask for your help. Lord, we want to be transformed. We want to be more like you. We want to trust you more because you're worthy of it. You've proven yourself. There's no question. Your faithfulness is not in question. Help us live like it the power of your spirit. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.com dot org.